Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. My, <laughs> my song, my song disappeared. Uh, this is a new song. I don't know what it is. It sounded like the beginning of Peaches by the President of the United States in the beginning. But Tycho Drums disappeared. They changed the system. So for right now, I guess this is my song. Unless someone <laughs> wants to write me a song. Anyway, I got to tell you people something. I, I did something. So I, I sort of felt bad the other day, but then I, then I didn't. I was, I was going to an audition yesterday, and I, I got into my car. And now there's a, a big spot in front of me on the street where I live. And there's a car, big car behind me. And there's another little spot. And this lady, this older lady, uh, turns around. And then she's waiting for me to move in my spot. And I'm thinking there's all these spots around. So I'm, I'm getting ready. You know, I had to take off. I had to, you know, get ready to drive to Hollywood because I hate driving to Hollywood. And this lady, it's like, it's like. 11 30 in the afternoon there's spots okay i mean it's no problem and plus she didn't read that at the end of the day at two o'clock you have to change sides because it's street sweeping so she starts flashing, flipping her lights at me to move and i'm thinking there's a spot right in front of me then she starts waving her arms and shooing me to move and i i, I lost it I, I actually gave her the finger and i felt bad but she had no right to sit there and it's there's a spot in front of me and i hate that i mean i get irritated if there's no spots and someone's in their car and they take forever and they're looking at their cell phone and they don't go and you're like can you move but if there's a spot in front of it i understand so anyway enough about that i was just <laughs> irritated and i went to my audition and it was as i said earlier it was for a bald guy so I, I don't know if I got the part, but I was bald, so it worked. Anyway, we have a great uh, great show today. A uh, very funny, funny person. Uh, a great writer. And uh, I tried to get her a while ago, and she was busy with the show she was working on, and she couldn't get off set. But I hit her up today, well, last week, and she came back, and it's Cindy Caponera. How you doing, Cindy? Good. How you doing? Good. I'm glad Steve. you came on. Me uh, too. We were talking about John Matta and Rose, and just, there's such a, you know, you're from Chicago, yeah. and there, there's such a, um, a vast talent pool in Chicago, just an amazing talent pool. And what I've learned about the people from Chicago is, and the people from Second City who've come in, everything, they're all just really cool, cool people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone's pretty regular. Regular. Now, Sonia, you grew up in Chicago. Now, as a kid, did you think you'd get into writing? Or, I mean, how did that all happen? Because I know your, your brother's a stand-up, but did you ever want to follow his footsteps in the stand-up? Or how did you, how did this whole thing happen? Well, um, you know, I... I was a an, mostly an actor performer for many many years until I kind of segued into just straight television writing. I didn't want to be a stand up because I my brother was a stand up. I thought that would be so weird to have two stand ups in one family. I mean, it's weird enough when you have two actors right. in one family, but two stand ups would it might point to all the dysfunction or <laughs> to, I don't know, some incredible narcissism. I don't know what it would be. but So I went the way of sketch, and so I went the Second City improv route. And I loved improv. It, like, blew my mind. Did you like it as a kid? Or, I mean, as a kid, I mean, we also said we can't say what do we want to be when we were a kid because we all do it for things. But when you were a kid, did you perform at all or did you have Oh, yeah, inkling? yeah. I was... Well, you know, I'm sure Johnny told you, uh, we used to have these things called the St. Patrick's Day play in Canaryville, where I'm from. Every year it was a play that, and my family was a big part of that. And so, and my grandfather was a singer on my mom's side, a recorded singer on Rain on uh, Rain Records. His name was Jumpin' Red Cassidy. So there, the whole family has the performance bug. It's really obnoxious, actually, but pretty great at the same time um so we were always it's a little bit like billy crystal's story we were always just performing and singing in the family and um i know in high school i was already doing woody allen monologues and directing woody allen plays and big, big woody allen fan big woody allen fan favorite and line? not so much now um Too favorite bad. woody allen line yeah can you think of what mine is? Uh, a, a strange man defecated on my sister. <laughs> crimes crimes yes. and misdemeanors. Crimes and misdemeanors is about one of my favorites. My husband and I, one of our first dates was watching um, Broadway Danny Rose, like on our second date at, you know, on the futon in his apartment. But uh, I love um, <laughs> uh, my grandmother used her wrists a lot. She was. Uh, she needs her wrist. She used her wrist a lot because her his grandmother. Her there's just so many great it's lines. Great. I, I know that. Have you ever listened to a stand up like the album? Yeah, 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 it's yeah. So it's so amazing. Just the lines, and they're they're so they hold up now, which a lot of times it doesn't, except you know some of his political things. But it's just amazing because then you would see stuff like and take the money and run stuff from his album is in there. Like we we, we escaped as a human charm bracelet. <laughs> and they put that in. No, it was. Are you sure it's 
this says gub. Yeah. No, it's gun, <laughs> but it says gub. It's just so classic. So you were doing the Woody Allen monologues and your stuff like that, and so and that was in high school. So yeah, I was already doing that in high school, and when I was in high school, I won some awards for being in the drama fest. I went to an all-girl Catholic high school, so, um, so, but I was also terrified at the same time that I had this urge to, um, kind of be out there. Okay. In fact, one of my teachers in high school thought I was faking my stage fright because she was like how could you okay this i'm not even she's like how can you be so good and be so afraid basically was the message and then when i went to college i went to illinois state which was that big theater school where all the steppenwolf people went and the my acting teacher adored me uh and wanted me to audition for the senior play and I, the first time I went to audition I got really afraid and I didn't and then she gave me a neck another opportunity to audition which was really unheard of to have a freshman audition for the you know right so it was stuff like that and then when I was at college and also of course I was a huge SNL fan because you know that was happening and we were talking about that like every Monday on the bus going to school and so that was and I have a very strong memory of watching Steve Martin for the first time on Johnny Carson, just losing my mind at how funny he was. And I went to see him live at the amphitheater. We lived down the street from the International Amphitheater in Chicago. So I was heavily influenced by comedy and I was really, you know, all the SCTV stuff. So then Second City came to Illinois State and I saw this blackout, which I had since performed a million times with the touring company, which was basically, I think it was Capelos and... Lance Kinsey um, in two chairs saying, you know, look up penis and then laughing and look up, you know, breast and then laughing. And then you hear a voiceover that says, you know, Dr. Schomburg, Dr. Renner, please report to radio. You know what I mean? It's the dumbest blackout you've ever heard. But I lost my shit. And I was just like, I have to do that. And so I actually left college a little early, started working at Prime Packing and taking improv classes. At Second City? At or? Second City Players Workshop, because they didn't have the conservatory then. Okay. This was the 1940s, Yeah, <laughs> before there were street lamps. <laughs> it was and, the 40s, um, yeah. It was, you know, it was, there was no lights. Just, there was no snow. Exactly. They snow wasn't even invented. You guys were, you were puppets, actually. That's what it was, you were puppets. <laughs> so you started doing the classes. So what happened was, when I started improv, basically my whole world exploded. Like I'd found something that I was really good at, that I was affirmed at, and I loved more than anything in the world. In fact, I was just talking to my friend who I pay yesterday, and um, I haven't been that inspired. Like, I'm looking for the thing that's going to make me feel that way. Do have you know, would you go, have you just given up improv completely? Is it something you could gravitate back to? Well, it's sort of like, you know, once I started... Being in L.A. and writing for television and, uh, you know, it's just, you know, the hours are weird and it's hard to find a group of your peers and I don't know, it just kind of got away from me. And then you're home at night and you're like, do I really want to go out? Which is, I, I know the that's feeling. all on me. By the but way, no, I, I talk like the guys from NYPD Blue. I say, <laughs> that's all on me and how is it going to play out and... Um, how do you want to play it? This is how I talk now. Well, that's good though. Yeah. So, 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 no, so you're, you're, do, you're loving the improv and you're, and you're, you're in, taking the classes. And now how do you get to the next point where you said you were in the touring group? How did, did you, were you with them for a long time before you started, you got accepted into the touring group or how long were you doing improv classes before you really got started getting on stage a lot? Well, after the, I guess it was a co- sort of a two-year program when you counted all the classes at Second City. I mean, at Second City Players Workshop, and then we studied at um, uh, Victory Gardens had a class, and so some of the guys that were already on main stage were teaching there, like Rob Riley and um, Rick Thomas. Uh, and then what happened at that time was you just started doing improv shows all over town, and so myself and Oh, wait, first the group that I graduated, Second City Players Workshop, we did these theater games and won some of those. And then four of us, um, it was myself and Doug Stevenson, 
Kevin Crowley and Barb Wallace started this group called Sons of the Desert versus Green Bay. It was a sketch show that we did at the um, Gingerbread Man up at Clark and Addison. And we did that for a long time. And then I decided I wanted to go to acting school at the American Academy. So I auditioned and went to New York. And while I was in New York, I decided to stay. And I did stand up for like a month. What'd you think? I was nervous, but it was fine. I was writing, I think I was writing piece bits about like plus size models because there was one in my acting class and I thought it was weird that she kept referring to herself as a plus size model and um <laughs> that's, and like, I, that's like like vegans now like if you ever go out, people all them oh I'm, I'm vegan or I don't eat gluten like anywhere you go it's like you can be in at a bar drinking a beer <laughs> and you hear someone talking well you know uh I don't eat gluten it's like yeah I'm, just, I'm drinking a goddamn but beer you're drinking a yeast exactly German. but it's just the same thing with the plus size model uh, yes. exactly they have to say it. it's certain things that they, I'm an atheist uh, okay we're not we're just watching a ball game we're not want to talk about religion <laughs> no. we don't want to talk about that <laughs> So so you're, you're in New York. So I'm in New York and I get a call because I would check in with Second City because I wanted to work there so desperately. And I get a call saying that they were having auditions and they wanted me to come in and audition. So I went in and auditioned. And afterward, the at the time, Joy Sloan was the artistic director, said to me, why don't you go back to New York for a little while and uh, come back and audition again? And I just started crying. I'm like, I... And then she said, hold on a minute. And she left and she came back. She said, okay, you're hired. <laughs> I thought, shit, if it was that easy. I know. There you go, people. I just cry. I would have cried like three years ago. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, it became such a love-hate relationship for me because I was there uh, until like 87. So now you know when I, I got hired when I was like 15. It was crazy. Um, I heard it was nine. Uh, yeah, maybe it was right after my confirmation. <laughs> I can't remember. You're a soldier of Christ and you're going to be working at Second City. And um, what happened was I was supposed to take over on the main stage, and Bernie Sollins gave my job to Bonnie Hunt. So I got mad, and I quit. And then I came back, like, in 1990. I did a one, my first one-woman show there. Which was about what? Uh, the Chicago Firemen's Strike of 1981, which I workshopped around town at different, like, open mics where I would do the fireman character, I would do the mother character, I would do the... I was living in an attic apartment, you know. Oh, my God. When I think about how many attic apartments I've lived in. <laughs> this one had a tub, but no kitchen sink. And then when I finally moved to New York, there was a shower in the sink, but no, and a bathroom down the hall. Oh, my God. I've spent so many. I think about my nieces and nephews being that age and how they're living. And I get so afraid for them. And I'm like, you know what? I was living in New York in a five-floor walk-up with the bathroom down the hall. Exactly. If my parent, yeah. It's just how things have changed. It's funny, like like uh, my college, you know, it's Kimmy University. It's a small state. It was a small state school in New Jersey. And I, I talked to friends on Facebook, so kids are looking at it. And there's a group of us that are from Stockton at State and uh, well, Stockton University now. But I laugh because like once we had to go like to the meal plan. And now there's like... 24-hour food places and all this stuff on campus. I'm like, God, if we didn't get there on a weekend, if we were hungover and missed from 11 to 1 for the brunch, right, right. we were screwed till dinner at 6. And it was you couldn't go anywhere. Maybe you'd eat, you'd find some kid who had food in his refrigerator. But it's weird now because like back then, it's but that was all fine when we lived that way. And it was now, it's like everyone's like, it's so easy. And we still worry because it's like things are more dangerous now when for us, it's like, oh, uh, oh, we... We're at a bar. We lost our right. Let's just hitchhike home at two, two in the <laughs> evening. Oh, you, you sure? Yeah, don't worry. We'll get home. And it was, it's just different now. I would do like a tiny bit of acid and then get on the motorcycle of some per- my neighbor <laughs> and drive for hours. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. But my parents never knew what we were doing. Oh, no, parents didn't. Because, you know, what I think it was, I think our parents trusted us. Like, I, I think about it. None of us, like, really got in trouble. Like, if you think about it, my graduating class was 840 people. Right. We had... We didn't have any moms. We had one mom in our school, one woman, girl, and no one ever got like like one two kids got arrested for breaking into a liquor store. But they were the the bad kids, you know right, what I mean? And right, so, right, right. Like it was like I think because we all were accountable for what we did. I mean, it was a matter of you know if you if you did a hit of acid and went on a motorcycle, you weren't going crazy. You were just you're out enjoying it. You, you didn't <laughs> sit there and go, oh hey, we're doing this. Well, let's go kill people. You right. know, it was it was a different time. I, it's just, it makes us sound all I hate when I say it's a different time because I feel like oh my god, I'm only 51 and I feel like I'm going on like 70 now. But I know. It, but it's true because it's like I sit there and go, man, I go I see a kid at a 
I go, man, we knew how to drink. You know, we, 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 no one got in trouble. No one got DUIs. What the hell's going on? Who are these kids who started getting DUIs? They ruined it for everybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it was. I mean, we had one murder, but that was it. Yeah, exactly. So now, so you're, you're in New York. You go back to New York? So I come back from New York. I start working at Second City, and that's when I do that whole stint. And then I finish my one-person show, and then I come back to Second City to work on the main stage for a year. Then I finish that year. So where? So then, what do I do? I think. Well, you're you're in Second City, so now do you, do you, is it improv still what you love, or did you want to start? Oh writing yeah, or? no, it's fantastic. Well, before I got hired, I was still. Here was my thing. I didn't like auditioning, and maybe it's because I wasn't a trained actor and I couldn't break down scripts the way trained actors do. So I always wrote my own material. I always found I was better at it. I could write for my characters better. Even when I was doing sketch shows, there was always going to be a little piece that I would write as a monologue. And then the monologues became these plays. Okay. I felt very um, strong about making sure that my solo shows were a play, that they weren't just a series of, um, you know, stories or that they actually had a spine and a narrative that took you full circle. Because to me, it was like, well, what was going to make it different? And I felt like that was a really important part of it. So, um, what am I talking about? Hard candy right now? What's happening? Uh, well, we were talking about we were talking about you being in, about when you wrote your one person show, and then you going back to Second City. Oh yeah, yeah. So I do the fireman show, and I do it. I use the etc stage to perform it. And then after I do that run, which had like fantastic reviews and was really kind of critically acclaimed, um, they asked me if I wanted to come back and replace one of the girls. So while I was doing that, they also asked me to go to Canada and work on the show called um, Second City Live, which was shot in Hamilton um, with a bunch of the Canadian Second City people, but Rose, and that's where Rose and I got close because Rose Abdu came with me there. But it was like Ryan Stiles, Catherine Greenwood, really great Canadian Second City people. And that was my first experience of writing without performing. And Polly Draper was the host, and I wrote Polly Draper's monologue. In fact, the whole first year I was at SNL, I wrote almost every opening monologue. Um, but backtrack, so we did the Canadian show, then I'm back at Second City. Then I wind up leaving there. And then I think I, I might have did a couple plays. And then I moved to New York to be a nanny for Christine Ebersol's baby. Okay. And that's how I got to New York. That's when I did the Comedy Central shows with uh, my friend Joe Forrestal, who was a protege of Lauren's, who produced Kids in the Hall. I did that for two seasons with Paul Dinello, Amy Sedaris, Steve Colbert. Strangers with Candy? It was called Exit 57. Okay. It was their first show. And then from there, I got hired at SNL by Steve, primarily by, with the help of Steve Higgins, who I met when I was in acting school in New York, who became a producer at SNL. So that was, some, was it different for you just when you went to SNL just to, to do the writing? I mean, was that, you know, was for you, you had the background Yes, the learning forming. curve for me was difficult because at the time then, there was Molly Shannon, Sherry O'Terry, Nancy Walls. Um, so you're writing pieces, but again, I'm inexperienced at writing for others. So I write a piece that I could play, but I put Molly's name on it or Sherry's name on it or whatever, and they can't play it because they have, they could play it, but not the way I could play it. Right. And it's also how you see it. If anything, if you write something for yourself and someone else does it, they're not going to do it as, even though they'll do it great, it's not going to be as good as how you would do it because you wrote it for you, and you envisioned exactly how right. it should be. And I think that's a problem sometimes because then you get you, you get a little pissed because you're like, no. I mean, it could be something so like just instead of putting your hand this way, put your hand over here, and they're like, why? And you're like, because that's the way it's supposed to be. Yes, it's very nuanced, and until you learn their nuances, until you learn the subtleties of what makes them really funny, until you can detach enough to just observe and write for them. Uh, you know, it was a it was a really long road for me going from that way to that way. And then I would still like even in 
97, I guess, I did another solo show that Adam McKay's wife, Shira Piven, directed okay. that I brought to Chicago called The Debutante Ball, which was a, basically about seven women who would never, ever be even allowed near a debutante ball. And I ran that for three weeks at the Victory Gardens Theater, but then I had to go back to SNL. But it was running so well that I probably could have ran it for like six months. Um, so I was always caught between earning a living as a writer for television and wanting to kind of be out in the world. Because when I first moved to New York, when I went with Christine as the nanny, and that lasted like three months because the play she was supposed to open uh, didn't open on Broadway, and they went back to L.A., I, I, was, I actually went to Juilliard. I'm like, I want to come here. And they're like, you're... I think you're a little too old to be right. here. I thought for sure I was just going to go to Yale and get my MFA and be on Broadway. Like, I didn't, this was not in my, you know, I don't know how it happened, really. It's great. You know, it's really funny also is it's that, you know, you were going back and forth. And as you said, you know, it's hard for writing for them at first, like Molly Shannon and stuff. And it must have, I would think, it, it was probably harder for you, too, also, when you were doing that. And then you were going and doing this show in Chicago. That's a success. So you're sitting there. And I I would think at some point in your mind, you must say, God damn it, I should be on SNL. I mean, did that ever go through your mind saying, wait a second, I'm doing the show. It's kicking ass. I performed. They're great. I can write for them. Well, if I can write for them when I'm writing for no, me and I- then I'm up there performing, I mean, it must have been sort of. Not hard because you, you you were working, which is great, and everyone would love to get a writing job with SNL. But when you sit there and you think that could be me, and in actuality, it's not like some idiot going, "Oh, that could be me." When it never could be. Actually, it could be you because you had a successful show. Going. Right. I mean, did that did, was that a pain did that drive you crazy? Sometimes? Well, actually, it's funny that you say that because after that happened, I wanted to maybe have some opportunities to perform on the show, but. There's sometimes, except for Tina and maybe Eddie Murphy and some few exceptions, when you're a writer on the show, they like to keep you being a writer. And unless you have, like, extreme balls, can I say balls on your show? Um, Like, if I really wanted to be a performer, I would have to write something. I'd have to hit a home run every time I got to the table. I'd have to not care how people saw me. I'd have to not care what people thought about me, trying to get, trying to be so ambitious. You know what I mean? There's there's other messages, my own personal messages, that got in the way of me just really pushing forward. Things that just make me who I am, but didn't necessarily, were not advantageous in terms of making that transition from uh, writer to performer on the show. And I my one of my last conversations with Lauren was, me saying I'd like to perform more on the show, him saying basically no, and me wind up leaving. Okay. That was the year I left. So you're like, I'm done. Cause right. It's just you were tired. Of, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't taking you anywhere. It wasn't going to take you to a point where you could actually perform. So you probably figured, well, it was fun. Yeah, the reason I left was because I, d- I felt like I was getting short on time and I wanted to perform more and I couldn't seem to make this thing balance for me. Uh, but I left. I did my show again at the HBO Workspace, and I got a development deal for, to out do here? my own show at CBS. Out here? Yeah. So so you came out here after you left SNL? Yes. Okay. Where'd you live? I always ask people, where's the first place they lived? I always, because it's so different. Like, now the town has changed so much, but it's like, do you remember the first apartment? Yes, I absolutely do. In fact, when I would come out here for those meetings um, from New York about, the, you know, having my own show... Um, I always took Beverly Glen because I was staying in the Valley and my meetings were at Fox. So, or in the area of Fox. So my first apartment was for two months on or- on Romaine. Okay. And that was just temporary. Then my very first apartment was on um, Beverly Glen. And then we bought a house right off Beverly Glen. And then we bought one right over Mulholland, like five minutes from Beverly Glen. So Beverly Glen has always been my It's weird how you gravitate to certain places and then you sit there and then you see in the change. Like I I went to an audition down Romaine the other day and I was just like, (laughs) it was just weird. I was like, because I lived, when I first moved here, I lived in in Hollywood, but I had a little studio because I was still married and living in San Diego going back and forth. And now that whole behind Hollywood and Highland now is blown up. But I I wanted to drive by my building. I'm like, nah, I don't want to see it now because it's probably all like commercial. I liked it when it was a little crappy studio. It was 385 a month. And you could hear like the... 
the hookers fighting in the garbage behind, you know. And <laughs> that's and, my chicken. Exactly. And then you would see kids come down from Hollywood <laughs> High and getting fist fights. This is when kids would fist fight. This right. is thirteen years ago. And you could watch it out your window, but you know no one would get hurt. It was right. just like an old time fist fight. So so you move out here and now with the develop you get a development deal. Right. So I get a development deal and I didn't know that everyone and their mother had one. Like my mother could have had one. <laughs> who, who knew? So I thought it was super special. And I actually, and I wrote this show with Nancy Steen at the time, who was a, I think she surfs now, but at the time she was a very, um, you know, respected uh, television writer. And when it didn't move forward, I was devastated. And my agent was like, well, I guess you're going to get a job. And I'm like, wait, what am I doing? Like, I couldn't in my head allow myself to do both things. So I got a job as a staff writer on the Norm show, and I knew Norm MacDonald from SNL. He's been so good to me. Even I worked on two of his shows, and he well, always comes to my readings and stuff. He's a. Well, I was going to say since you you didn't really you had Saturday Night Live writing I uh, experience, but you didn't have any sitcom writing experience. Right. But he knew you, and he knew you you had the chops. So yeah. he just said, "Okay, I want her to come aboard." Right. Okay. So my first sitcom job, it's me. I'm probably. You know, I'm not young in the game because I was already at SNL. I already had a full life acting. And I'm a staff writer on the show. There's 11 guys, one other woman, and they don't really want me to talk because I'm a staff writer. Now, granted, at the end of the year, I realized there was some method to their madness because I didn't know how to write sitcoms. But at the same time, I'd been in comedy already for 15 years. So it was weird for me, especially after writing and producing and performing all my own shows, to tell me that I'm, they really don't want me to talk. They just want me to listen. I was like, fucking, are you kidding me? Yeah, that makes no sense. I mean, I think because it's like anything, you know, comedy is a collaborative process. And I would think, were they younger? Well, no. Yes, they were a little bit younger. But really, it was just because I didn't understand the format. Okay. So it was probably fine for me to pitch jokes. But to get in on the storytelling, which I had no idea how they did it, you know... Again, my road has always been really hard for whatever reason. My obstinance, my, you know, I'm too sassy. I, I want to talk more. Stop. I don't know why, but, you know, perhaps I should have took off a year and took three or four classes. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, but, but, you say, but did you start to get the concept in this season? Did- One year later, I was like, I was like um, what's his name? Who's the son on The Simpsons? Bart. Bart. When he goes to France and he can't speak French. And then some crisis happens after he's been there for like six months and then he's speaking it fluently. And so after a year of watching and listening and watching and listening, I totally knew what to do. So then you went to the 80s show after that? Yes. Well, what I did was I wrote another solo show called Cookies and Booze. Okay. I performed that. I got a development deal from Carsey Warner and... Got hired at the 80s show. Now, the development deal was for developing a pilot or for you acting Just writing a script for Carsey Werner. Okay. Yeah. So so now you had to really, I mean, it's pretty, when you say, it's pretty quick when you, as I only had like a year of writing for sitcoms and all of a sudden you have a development deal and you probably, now did you tackle it by yourself or did you call in favors from people no, to no, help no. you? No, 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 that was fine. I was able to write something that I thought, um, I mean, in retrospect, when I look at it now, of course, it's very early work. Um, but I had Tom, Tom Werner and Kathy Bugsby and Marcy Carsey. And so people were giving me notes and stuff like that. So I wasn't alone. The student, they were acting as a studio and they were shepherding, you know, the project. So now in, in, on the 80s show, you're, you were a co-producer. Yes. So, okay. Now when you said the norm show, you were a staff writer. Yes. I took a big jump. Now, what is the difference between a staff writer and a co-producer? About four titles. Okay. I probably should have been more experienced. Well, I don't know. I mean... I mean, job description. The job description is always the same. The only difference is that once producer gets attached to your title, you you get a little bit more responsibility. Like, let's say, once you're like a producer-producer, depending on how top-heavy a show is, you might be, uh, you know, a... um, a strong member of the team, you know what I mean? And you can go down and, you know what? Here's the difference. The difference is when you're at SNL, you produce every single thing you write. 
when you start writing in sitcoms, you don't do anything but write and pitch in the room until you're usually like a supervising producer. Okay. Then sometimes you can run a joke room or you'll run the B room or whatever. And then when you get to be a co-executive producer, you'll start running the room a little bit. Unless, of course, at any point in this sequence, you write and produce a pilot that gets made. And then things shift a little bit. But it's really, it's sort of like sitcom writing's best kept secrets. There's a lot of... Um, collaboration, okay. a lot more collaboration than you would imagine. Everything's pretty much broken in the room. Everybody weighs in on everything. Everything's rewritten for the most part, depending on how the show is run. There's a lot of stuff that's group written. Um, it's a much different animal than you... Well, I don't know. I hope you're editing all these yeah, blank uh, spots. <laughs> you, no, we just go. Don't worry about it. You, 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 you say so you made that big jump. And so now then the show the show ends. So the show ends, and I'm a co-producer, and I wind up getting a job on Norm's second show, which is A Minute with Stan Hooper. Yeah, and you know what's funny? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking one of the co-stars of that was just on the show like two months ago, and I have to look it on IMDb. I can't Garrett think, Gillahunt. No, no, I forget. It was- uh, Or Garrett Gillahunt? I, no, it was- uh, Oh, no, he, he played one of the- uh, there was there was a was that the one where there was a gay couple? Yes, he was the he was um the guy that was on the the second Andy Griffith show. Dan Roebuck. Yes, Roebuck. Yeah, because Roebuck. Is I good. love Dan Roebuck. Dan Roebuck lives in Burbank, and he's yes, good friends of mine. He's a great guy. And he was talking about it, and he said, "Yes." Yeah, so he was on that. So so once again, Norm did Norm help you get the job on? Yes, Stanford? Norm helped me get the job. Um, there were people that came in from Norm's camp, and people that came in from Barry Kemp's camp. Barry Kemp created Coach. So that only lasted 10 or 13 episodes. But the problem with that show, I think, was, in addition to funny stories that I won't say on the air because they're too dirty, was... Um, oh, you could say it. Oh, no, no. Okay, this, it's too long. I'll tell you in private. But um, it should have been on CBS at the time, and it was a Fox show. It would have done far better on CBS because I think it skewed a little older. Norm wouldn't have... One of our guest stars was James Whitmore. <laughs> he right. was like 85. <laughs> like every week, the age of the guest star just went up and up and up. And by this time, James Whitmore was really just a tree with right. a pipe in his mouth. He didn't even, I don't even think he had any skin on his body anymore. Uh, but, you know, well, that as, was fun. As you're writing, does, did it, it must be a little bit frustrating when the, when the series or you're involved with something good and then... It's done. And then you were in SNL, which you know it have kept running, but you weren't happy. So did you sit there? I mean, that must be a hard path sometimes because you sit there and go, you don't want to keep getting involved in the series and you get connected like a Stan Hooper and you knew Norm. So you had that connection. And then it gets canceled and it's like, wait a second. For one, I think it must suck when you're a writer or an actor when a series gets canceled when it shouldn't get. And that must be just a, get you pissed off. And I think after a while you just get used to it. But I mean... Were you, did you ever sit there and go, man, I should have just stuck with Saturday Night Live? Or were you digging right for the sitcoms? Or what was up? Well, you know, at the time I left SNL, it was really time for me to go emotionally. Um, and I always cherish it for being one of those places where some of my best friends are people that I worked with there. Paula Pell, Adam McKay, Lori Nasso. People that... Um, you know, the bond, just like the Second City people, the bond is just, and the community is so strong. Um, so I always cherish it for that. But I knew after the first year, because I think it was so competitive, like I'm not one of those people that says stuff like, I'll show you how good I am. Okay. I'm not motivated that way. I need to be a little affirmed. I need to get a couple of attaboys. I need, or, you know, girls. I need, at the time, anyhow, you know, I needed that a little more. Um, and I was concerned about how people saw me and, um, you know, making sure people were comfortable with me. All kinds of shit that you shouldn't really be worrying about if you're in show business. Yeah, but it's really. just, but that's just human nature. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, we do worry about that. And I know what you're saying. It's but like, you know, there's people that I've met on this path, along this journey, sorry to say journey, that didn't care. And I see where their careers went and how they behaved and how they were treated. And 
Uh, but I still believe in my heart that slow and steady win- wins the race. I, do I really do. For uh, me. Well, I think for a lot of people. I mean, I just said I have a lot of character actors on the show, and the same thing. They've been here forever. They acted on a series with someone 20 years ago, and that guy was a prick. And guess what the guy's <laughs> doing now? He's gone. He's nowhere. You know, he might get a small part, but it happens. I think if you're nice, you're going to stay. And I think that's the one thing. As I, I've had people say, if you want to be a, a big star, you have to give everything. That's that's you know, and and you know, and your life drastically changes. And then, but if you want to just work in this profession and make a good living, you know, what? you can be a good person and you can work. And you know what? In the long run, guess what? If you you're in a movie and the movie sucks, no one's saying, "Hey, you know, this person sucked." They're saying, "Hey, this big star, he sucks." And I think that's what happens a lot in this business. Yeah, I think there's. It's definitely. Um... You know, it's I don't know anymore. I've been I've been having a lot of um, introspection about the whole thing in general. Like when we were talking in the beginning of the conversation about wanting to be inspired, like I would love to feel about something the way I felt about improv when I first learned how to do it. And I have a couple of ideas that I'm excited about. Like last year, I released a book that I wrote of short stories now, what was that process like for you? Because, you know, coming from writing and then doing the characters and, and you said when you did your first one woman play, you wanted it as a play and not just short stories. Right. So now did you find it challenging because you've written in well, sketches or some short stories, but was it was it inter- was it different for you to write a short story to sit down and go, OK, it doesn't I'm not writing this for anybody. I'm writing just a story. I'm using my imagination. Was that was that something easy for you to do or something hard for you to do? Well, it actually wound up being easy because there's a certain um, community here in Los Angeles that, and if you've talked to John Regi about it, because he participates a lot, where they're sit and spin and say the word and all kinds of places where comedy writers come and read their essays. And so I'd been doing that on and off for, I don't know, five or six years. And I had a collection of essays that I'd written specifically for these evenings. Um, And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to put a book together. And I didn't feel like, first of all, you know, publishers don't love, you know, there's not that many David Sedaris's. So they're not going to make a ton of money off it. And I didn't feel like spending, you know, two months writing a book proposal about who's going to be my audience and coming up with a marketing plan just to have you say maybe or maybe not and I thought it's like the wild west out there right now and self-publishing and stuff like that and I had enough contacts like Adam McKay wrote my foreword and Amy Sedaris and Colbert and Matt Walsh they all wrote blurbs for me Colin Quinn um, I had enough street cred or TV cred to I'll keep saying cred um, That's a good word cred. to get some press like I hired a um, PR guy for a couple months and I did a bunch of radio and articles and television um, and I worked with this woman who was a um, archivist as well as a someone who could lay the book out for me because I used a lot of home pictures and it was a really gut-wrenching personal process um, but it was fantastic And I keep thinking about like, well, what's life after TV going to be for me? Like, am I going to have a writing career where I can still make a living? And with the self-publishing world, if you are willing to treat it like a full-time job and create your brand and put it out there and like I can, then my next project is to publish my two one-woman plays. So then you have a website and you put up your work and you sell your work through all these different mediums and you you just keep moving in a creative direction and I think in the long run it could be something really fantastic well self-publishing is I mean I, I just I published a cookbook because, oh you did because no, I had a health problem a while ago so it's a low it's a low sodium cookbook oh and I just I put it together and there's no pictures and I at the end of the show I pitch i tell people to buy it but uh no but it was just amazing that going into it you know it was just was great as i had no idea how to do this and then i sat there and i went on fiverr and i found some guy who laid it out laid it out perfectly because i had no idea i just i typed it on an eight and a half by ten whatever right and i said i went this side and i, I didn't think that way because you know when we write we just write i don't think technically because i don't know what something looks like but that's what's great now like, but with you and your book you can find someone and you don't have to worry about that you just can write it and you don't have to worry about 
going through a publisher when you sit there and you can put it automatically on Amazon or you can sit there and you can sell it yourself and you make more money that way. And if I had the energy, because after the book was released, that May, I got hired on ground floor. So then I kind of had to put everything down because I was working full time. So I didn't, so, you know, it was sort of a, then I restarted things again in November doing readings and stuff like that. So, you know. That might be the way to go for you, though. That I mean, might be because, the way to go. Or I might start writing movies, although I get afraid of writing movies. You know, it's so funny. I mean, I wrote a screenplay ages ago, and I got I optioned it for like $500 against 50000 <laughs> But I didn't care. I was in Hollywood for a little bit. Sure. And, and it is true, because when you write a movie, you know, there, it's... Everyone, and I let people read this one movie, you know, and people, you know, you get two opinions. One go, oh, well, that's, uh, that's just too damn commercial. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's about a mascot school. It's, of course, it's going to be commercial. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's, I mean, and, you know, but if you can write a one-woman show and do a play, a sc- I mean, that's much harder because you're actually, with a one-woman show, you're basing on things you know. A screenplay, and you've written a comedy, would probably be very easy for you because you sit there and all you need is final draft and just start screwing around with it. <laughs> and then at the end you go, and, you, and you're a smart writer, so you know, basically, people, <laughs> different people who haven't written, and they say, oh, I'm going to write the screenplay. And they sit down and they start writing it. It doesn't make sense. You are probably smart enough with your writing because you've written for a lot of shows that you can sit there, if you're 20 pages in, you're, you're going to go, you know what? This sucks. This isn't funny. <laughs> I mean, you should do it that way. Yeah, I mean, I have like three treatments, full treatments, like 26-page treatments, whatever. Haven't well, written the first word. Well, you got to do it. <laughs> now, I got to ask you this. You were doing that. You're writing for the sitcoms, and I said you you went, you went did My Boys, yeah. which was a very popular show, a, yes. very, a great cast, and a Gaffigan's on it, and just everyone. And so you're doing sitcoms, and I guess Living with Fran was with Fran Drescher. Yes. Now, how did that come up? Did, were you a fa- fan of Fran Drescher's work? or what? Well, you know, after a while, you're just getting jobs. I mean, for me... I'm telling you what, this is so funny that we're talking today because I've just had all these thoughts today, like yesterday. (laughs) But, you know, because now you're in L.A., right? And now you have a house and now you are living this thing. I'm not living beyond my means, but I still have to have a job. Right. So my pattern was I would sell a pilot and staff, sell a pilot, staff, sell a pilot and staff. That's just kind of how I was doing it. So I was always doing a little something for myself. And then I would get on shows like, you know, Living with Fran. And um, they're not shows that were necessarily that I liked or that I could write easily or that I want, not even that I could write easily, that I wanted to write. Right. Or that there was a character that I loved writing for. Like, uh, I would love to work on the Goldbergs. I love Wendy McClellan. I think she's I, a genius. I think she should be winning every Emmy, every award, everywhere. I, you cannot preach to the choir more. I grew up. I grew up in a very Jewish town, ten minutes from Philadelphia, but in New Jersey. Oh wow! And I grew up at the same time in the eighties. And man, I'm going to tell you, my, my girl, my girlfriend didn't watch it at first, and she's also from New Jersey, and uh, she's a few years younger than me, and she's an eighties kid. We went to college together. But it was so funny when we started watching it. That show, Wendy is so amazing as the mom. I mean, and George Siegel's 81. I don't even get- I I'm, die for him. He's and 81. And Jeff's doing a great job. And, he, and they're all great, that whole yeah. show. But now that's a show you would love to get attached to. Yes, of course. It's, I mean, because I feel like that's a show where I know that woman, so that would be a blast to write for her. I know Jeff's character. That would be a blast to write for. I love writing single camera. And- I have a lot of friends on that show, so that would be something fun for me. Um, I interviewed recently for a show about a, it was an urban drama about a drug lord, but I keep calling him a kingpin because I'm 75. (laughs) And what I had to do in my brain to make the show work for me, um, like I could do it. If you, I'm a writer. If you hire me, I'll write your show. But when I think about what would make me happy, what would, um, I mean, let's face it, everyone's not getting cre- creatively fulfilled at their work. Right. But I think it's sort of like that idea of, you know, when you're marrying someone and you're like, well, nobody's perfect. Well, you have to start somewhere. 
even if he's not perfect, he's not this guy. Right. So I have to think of that in terms of what I want to work on. No, no show is perfect, but how many times do I have to twist myself into a pretzel to kind of fit on your staff? Yeah, I was going to ask you that because you wrote with Sunny with a Chance. Right. Which is more of a kid's show. Oh, my God. So what is that like? Because you come <laughs> yeah. from this background of SNL, Second City, ballsy. You know, as you say, you're brass. And then all of a sudden, hey, here's a job. It's for kids. How did you, how did you even, I mean, that must have Can been a I nightmare. Can I please tell you that that had to have been almost my, the only saving grace about that job was the Engelberg sisters who I met, who are these lovely, crazy women writers, and Feldman, who ran the show. Uh I think I had one idea that whole season, and it was about a backpack that had punching, that had, what do you call it when you go in the ring and you put on boxing gloves, that came out to hurt people that were bullying you. And that was it. And it came to me, it was so hilarious, I was at the writer's table, and it came to me, it was, I literally felt like God knocked on my brain and dropped it in because there was nothing preceding it and nothing ever came after it besides like a rap about bumblebees. But other than that, every idea, every thought, every idea that came up in that show, I wanted to just stab myself in the fucking throat. That's yeah. I mean, I can imagine because it's a kid's show now, but you also know you also wrote for shameless, right now that, okay. I watched the first season and that I, was my season. Okay, that I, was I really enjoyed season. it. Yes. But then what happens is it's like anything. If you fall like, and it wasn't, Under Man wasn't as much. If you fall four unders in Netflix, if you fall like five episodes on the second season, you just, you don't catch up. What was that like writing? Because that shows, I mean, everyone, that's a, that was a ballsy show. You must have enjoyed writing for that. I loved working on it first season. I think at the end of the day, there might have been some comedic, stylistic things with um, the executive producer, I feel like I gave that show its context. I gave it its addresses, its neighborhood. I grew up a mile from where we would shoot in locations when we would go there in the winter. Um, And then I felt after I left, the show just became outrageous for outrageous sake, that there was no, that the heart and the comedy that was sort of intrinsic in the first season was completely lost. That's my opinion. Now, why did you leave? I wasn't asked back. Okay. Which is weird. It probably Which did. was very weird to me. Because, yeah, it's so funny because it's funny you say that because when something like that, I always say like it's like with shock. You know, it's like I watch Shark Tank. I like Shark Tank. Oh, I Tank. like Shark Tank. But lately I've been watching it and like when I see Kevin, Mr. Wonderful, you know, it's like it's the same thing. They're getting more outrageous. Like before it was in the beginning, you know, they were about outrageous. He was the jerk. But now it's like every time you know he's going to be a jerk. It's like you could write his dialogue because right, right, right. he's going to say, well, I can. And, and you sit there and you start watching it and you say, this isn't the same. You know Mark Cuban is going to, if you're if you're a shuckster, as my mom would say, if you're a shuckster, he'll spot it right off and I'll hate you. Damon is just an idiot. But it's just the same thing. It's, just, it's like getting more outrageous where it's to the point where you really don't want to watch it because it's something that you sit there and go. There's nothing redeemable. Nobody right. ever wins. Not that. And. And in a family like that, because I kind of grew up with six kids in a dysfunctional family. We had my mother, so that was different. But there were some similarities. Uh, And the writing staff was very small. There was a fair amount of inexperience on the writing staff. Um, But I really felt like I was the only one on the writing staff that brought that real-life experience to the table. Um, so it was shocking to me. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why things happen that I'm not privy to. Um, shows get canceled. Sometimes you get asked back. Sometimes uh, you want to move on and go to a different show. All kinds of stuff happens. And each show has a different experience. I haven't had an experience where I get on, let's say, Friends and I'm there for seven years and then I walk away with a big overall deal and, you know, whatever. It just hasn't been my path. Um, mine is mine. It's made me who I am in this business. It's made me stronger. It's made me um, maybe more cautious. Um, but right now I feel the str- absolute strongest about what I bring to the table, what I have to offer, what I know I'm good at, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I ask you a question, like when you said with, with Shameless, it was a lot of inexperienced writers. Now, as... A writer, and now when you were inexperienced the first year on 
norm or whatever it was when they told you to be quiet <laughs> they didn't talk, talk do you sit there and think about how people treated you then like that way and sit there and try to help these young writers out or do you sit there or do you find them sometimes they're a little cocky so you don't want to help them out because i know you know you run into yeah some like people. we had a writer that had never written anything before and i don't want to tell tales out of school i will just say this the executive producer was in our writer's room every single day and because he was such a high profile revered gentleman I didn't feel like we were normally when you're in a room. There's some camaraderie. Yeah, well, it's anything. It's the camaraderie. That's just. The, yeah, I don't even know how to say camaraderie. I'm saying that's com- camaraderie. Why can't I say it? I can't. Uh, but th- this was a room where I felt like because everybody wanted approval from this person, there was a lot of non-support. Okay. See, that sucks because that's what that's sucks. The e- that's the simplest way. No. Now, did you like writing for Nurse Jackie? Nurse Jackie was a really fun experience in the beginning. There was great story breaking. Um, We were in the fifth season. What happened was new showrunners came in that were never there before and initially tried to make the show something different. And our whole staff kind of got in the crosshairs of that showrunner's vision, even though it wasn't what Showtime wanted and it wasn't what the star of the show wanted. And so the entire staff got let go after that season. See, that would suck because that would just seem like, because I watched this, I watched, I watched the first season or two seasons. That would just be a, uh, a fun character to write for. Because, I mean, for her, I would think that as a writer, that would be a good character because you can almost write anything. Because, you know, I mean, it's. Yeah, it's, kind of. Well, here's the thing about Nurse Jackie it's not a comedy. Right. So there's not like super funny people within miles of that show. And when. I think about SNL and I think about being around the funniest people in the world all day long in my world, in my field. And then you go to other shows, just like the Norm show, just like every writer's room. There's nobody. It's never as funny as as the SNL writer's room ever. So Nurse Jackie and Shameless, they were interesting shows. They had some comedy in them. But it wasn't the room where you're doing a bunch of bits and having a great time while you're coming up with creative ideas. Nurse Jackie was like a, you know. It was a drama. I mean, it, it was a drama. It's a the fact that it's 30 minutes, everyone, don't be fooled. Everyone always thinks, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Now, now it must be, I mean, with such a comedy background, I mean, and you said you're a writer. I mean, so you, you write. Right. But, but drama just must be. I mean, it must be sort of, I would think for, as you said, the camaraderie too, for a comedy person, I would think writing for a drama would sort of be boring because as you said, when you're with comedy, when you're writing, people can just say whatever and joke around. But with drama, it's like, I'm sure there's a tone to the room where it's like, you can't be so loose. Well, the thing about it is too, is that there's a, there's a misleading that it's a comedy. So you're under the impression that you can write jokes. But at the end of the day, you can't write a lot of jokes. And there was only one character on the show who was really allowed to be funny. And I remember being at the table readings thinking, if we were anywhere else, she might be moderately funny. But in this room, because no one else gets to be funny, she's hilarious. Um, So it was just confusing that way. I mean, you know, maybe the the biggest... (laughs) As I say it out loud right now, maybe the biggest uh, obstacle for me is my acceptance of what my reality is at any given moment instead of wishing it was different or thinking it's different or, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. like, if I would have accepted right away, oh, they don't do this. They make you think they do this, but it's not this. Then maybe I would have adjusted quicker, whatever, I, you know, yeah, who knows? Like, I'm not, you, you don't want to, I mean, you don't always want to adjust because then you lose your edge. I mean, that's the thing, you know? Now, yes, that's now, true. Now, Why should I adjust? Yeah, exactly. It's like, right. if they say it's a drama, then you walk in, you go, okay, this is drama. I want to get out of here. I don't, I don't want to write drama. Right. And, and, you know, and, and luckily enough, where you have a resume where you can get jobs, you can say, I don't like some, a young 18 year old, 22 year old kid's not going to be able to go, oh, this is a drama. I don't want to write this. He's going to say, right. well, I got I to suck it up for a few years. So then, then you wrote for Ground Floor, which was a comedy. Ground Floor was really fun. The room was very funny. The showrunner was really, really hilarious. And um, it, was, it was like a supercharged comedy show. And I hadn't been in a comedy room since 
Yeah, for a while. I mean, for a while. So it was challenging that way. But I really had a lot of fun on that show. I liked, I did a lot of producing, like, I felt like I was more at more. Um, hands on. Hands on. Yeah, it was better. Well, it's funny about Ground Floor because Rory Scovel was on the show. Oh, my God. I he, love Rory He Scovel. had to cancel because he had auditions and then he came back on the next week and he's like, I had three pilot auditions. And he's saying, and then like a month later, I'm like, holy crap. He just told me about that. So it was, He was like the funny. He was the reason I wanted to write on the show. He's a great stand up. A very funny guy. So we have about a few minutes left. Okay. So, okay. So your book. Are you going to do more readings from your book? I am going to do more readings. I don't have anything lined up right now. Me and my friend Joanna Stein, who's also an author, and another friend, Cynthia Carl, who's a fantastic singer-songwriter, and Joanna's a very funny writer. Uh, We may do... We've been doing these shows where we each read and Cynthia plays, and they're really, really fun shows. We may be doing a benefit in the summer, um, but... I I I don't have anything exactly on hand right now except to write some more stories. Do, do you miss the stage? I do. I mean, it's like I mean, and the funny thing is, I think now I've noticed this with stand-ups too. You know, stand-ups that I worked with years ago, and then I see them now. Everyone change as you get older, you change, and your act changes, and you grow into your act. And I think with you, it's perfect because you know you have the stage background, and then your stories. I mean, you can probably just bring them a different. I mean. The stories that if you if you looked at the story when you you were the twenty five year old you would have given a completely different delivery but now it's something to be it's something big so you should be excited about that I am excited I just did the audio book it's coming out very soon on Audible so now what is that how, how does it do an audio book you just sit and do you, I mean how long oh did it God. take you I forgot the stamina it takes to stand and read or even do anything <laughs> for four hours I'm like am I still standing. <laughs> Uh, so I should have prepared more, but I think it turned out good. I'll hear I'll hear it before it gets completely, as soon as it gets to completely edited, and then it should be ready to go. Now, the, what, what's the book called? I Triggered Her Bully. Okay, and now where can you find that book? Uh, the book is on Amazon. It's in paperback and uh, Kindle. Uh, it will be soon on iTunes. Um, it's I think I have a link to it on my website, which is com. And Audible, the book will be through Audible, I guess. I'm not sure how to do that. That must be cool, though. I mean, an audio book. Because I remember when I moved across, across country, I would, I would go to the library before I moved, and I'd copy cassettes of audio books. So when I drove, when in the middle of the country, when you can't find a radio station, I remember listening, you know, you listen to books. And I was yeah. like, oh, I remember some of the Stephen King books were great. Because they, they always had great announcers. Now, did you feel good reading your own book? Did you? I did. But again, I wished I would have just prepared a little bit more. But by the second hour, I was kind of in a rhythm. So I went back and did the first story again. Now, now are you tw- do you tweet? I do. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, CC Cap. CC Cap? CC Cap, yeah. So it's three C's, AP. Yes, three C's, AP. Do you tweet a lot? I go on spurts. Okay. Now, do you tweet jokes or what do you tweet? I tweet like <laughs> one of my I, – I tweet, yes, funny things like the – one that I can remember right now is, um, you know, let's face it, spanks or girdles, okay. you know, That's or <laughs> I was looking up the world's healthiest cheeses, but I was gnawing on a on a <laughs> thing of Parmesan. I felt like a little chihuahua. I was just like really grinding it, looking up healthy cheeses. Like I... You should write your stuff. Well, you know, I want to thank you for coming on. Yeah, and thank it's, you it's, for having so me. So people follow Twitter at C-C-C-A-P, C-C-Cap. Also, it's com. C-A-P-O-N-E-R-A.com. And I have a I Triggered Her Bully Facebook page. And so please check it out and buy the book, okay? And uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I write jokes every once in a while. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 360 episodes up on there. Um, you can also email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. If you go to iTunes or Stitcher, same thing. Type in one word Cooper Talk because everything gets confused. Just type in Cooper Talk. You can get me an iTunes and Stitcher. And also go to my new website, stopthesalt.com. Stopthesalt.com. <laughs> That's my cookbook. It's my cookbook. Oh, uh, great. Stop the Salt. It's called Low Sodium Cooking for One Without Killing Yourself. 120 recipes that are easy, easy to make. There's no pictures, so you won't get intimidated because you sit there and look at pictures. You don't know what to do. There's not a ton of, there's not a ton of ingredients because I have a good spice rack, but sometimes if I see cumin, I don't have cumin and I can't make the recipe because you look at all these these hard to read cookbooks. So get that. There's a little funny little story about, you know, whatever food get it's in. Get your cumin. Get your cumin. Exactly. It's good. And go, you can go to Amazon and get it. You can go to, uh, 
barnesandnoble.com, but go to my site because I make more money. And if you go to coopstopthesalt.com, I will also autograph it for you. So there you go. It's nine ninety nine plus three ninety nine shipping. So that's about it. I want to thank. Remember, don't forget to follow Cindy at CCCAP, even though CCCAP, I like saying that. And uh, <laughs> I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll be here next week. So you make sure you come back and listen and have a great weekend.